0: Well, today we begin a new series called Encounters, and it is about people in the Gospel of John who encountered Jesus, people who encountered Jesus. And that encounter, as we're going to see, inevitably changes their lives, but not always in the same way. There's something very different in these encounters. And so I want to start in thinking about today's encounter. I want to start with this question. Have you ever had something happen that completely just uh, blew apart your expectations? Have you ever gone into a movie and you think, oh, I'll check this out, and then it ends up being your favorite movie and you're in tears and you have to kind of rework your life? Or maybe it, you met somebody online and, and, and you walk away from that first date and you're like, I think I'm gonna marry this person. Or maybe it's a friend that you met. Or you know, We have these experiences sometimes where we have an encounter with something and it completely changes all of our expectations. Well, today's encounter is between Nathanael and Jesus in John chapter 1. And we heard it read beautifully by Natalie. And in this encounter, Jesus absolutely defies all of Nathanael's expectations. And in fact, if you look at John chapter 1, and that's where it takes place at the very beginning of John's gospel, think about that. In John chapter 1, we see a whole bunch of things taking place in this context. John continuously is pulling from he begins his gospel by pulling from the very beginning of the old testament scriptures and so uh it's john's gospel starts with john 1 1 in the beginning was the word and there he's referencing creation and and, and genesis 1 1. and then in john 1.14, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us and that's of course the story of the tabernacle in exodus 25 and then in John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. So yeah, if you were here for Christmas Eve, I, think I preached a sermon on that. And that, of course, is referencing Moses' request to see God's face in Exodus 33. And the whole point of why I'm pointing this out is because you can't really understand John's first chapter unless you understand the Old Testament stories he is alluding to. That creates kind of the substratum of meaning in this text. And so this morning, underneath this amazing text, John one. Uh, 43 to 51, the story of Nathaniel. Underneath it is a substratum, another story. Okay, this is what's cool about the Bible. It's got these crazy layers of meaning that blow your mind. So before we go anywhere, I think we're going to do well just to read, the, just to rehearse the substratum underneath the story. And the substratum is the story of Jacob and Jacob's ladder. And maybe you've heard of the story. It's a very famous story. Jacob is the younger of two twins. Uh, the older one, Esau, is kind of a man's man. He's a hunter. He's an outdoorsy. You know, he's hairy. I mean, the, I think the text even says he's hairy, you know. Um, and uh, so, uh, and, and Jacob is kind of mama's boy, right? He's, he stays at home, and, but he's cunning. He's very crafty. And uh, basically what Jacob does is he cheats Esau, his older brother, out of his birthright by deceiving his dying father. All right, that's what his whole thing. He deceives his dying father into giving him the birthright. And of course, when Esau hears this, he's thinking, I'm going to kill you. And he, he literally is going to kill his brother. He's waiting for his father to croak so he can then kill his brother. So what does Jacob do? Jacob takes off for his life. He leaves his mother, his father behind. You know, He leaves it all behind. Never going to see him again. He has hardly anything. He just takes off. And it tells us that on that that first night, he is in the middle of nowhere. In fact, the text tells us that, and he has nothing. It says he uses a rock for his pillow. And that's just a, a simple way of saying he found himself in a hard place, right? He had hit rock bottom, right? Things are bad. And it's in that place, in the middle of Nowheresville, where this guy has a stone for a pillow, his life has hit rock bottom, that Jacob has a dream. He has a dream it's really essentially a vision. And in this dream, he sees a giant ladder or causeway or ramp, some giant kind of like ladder thing that connects heaven and earth. And he sees angel, he knows it's connecting it because angels are ascending and descending. And see, in this very strange place, God shows up. And when Jacob wakes up from his dream, He's absolutely shocked. This did this, you know, Nowheresville. He didn't expect this in Nowheresville, and and he didn't see this coming. And he said, and it says the text says, when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. This nowheresville. This something I had no expectations for God to show up here. Is where God shows up. See, that's the backdrop, and we're gonna hear echoes of this story as we go along. So, here, and, and it's a beautiful story. You know, God takes Jacob the deceiver, and in that place, Jacob hears from God, yeah, you're a deceiver, yeah, you're a liar, yeah, you're a cheater, and you know what? There's hope for you. And eventually, Jacob actually uh, is renamed Israel, from which we have the nation of Israel. He has Twelve sons, and eventually um, God forms a covenant with Jacob. Okay, that's the background story. So let's put that on ice, okay? Let's just put that on ice, all right? We're going to come back. We're going to pull it back out and use it. Uh, But just put that on ice right now, and let's get into today's encounter. Nathaniel meets Jesus. And the first thing you want to know about this section, and listen, I'm giving you a lot of context, okay? So hang with me, all right? We're putting things on ice, but it's going to come together, I- I'm trusting, all right? So hang with me. So let's do a little more context. This section here that we just heard beautifully read, John 1, 43 to 51, actually is part of a larger section that starts in verse 35 where Jesus is gathering disciples, okay? Disciples. A disciple just simply means a follower. Jesus is gathering followers, and the first follower that's mentioned is Andrew. Andrew, we learn, actually, that'd be, actually, let's just stop for a second. Wouldn't that be cool to be like, oh yeah, I was Jesus' first disciple. <laughs> like, I got it first, you know. Actually, Andrew was on it. Andrew was following John the Baptist. And when Jesus comes on the scene, John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God. And Andrew's like, all right, well, I think I'll start following this guy, Okay. <laughs> So Andrew's the first disciple, and the text tells us in verse 40, right before our text, that the first thing that Andrew does when he starts following Jesus is he goes to his brother Simon and tells him, we've found the Messiah, the one we have been waiting for, our people have been waiting for our whole lives, we found him. And and then it tells us that he brought his brother Simon to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, you... You are Simon, son of John, but you will be called Peter. So Jesus calls him a name, Peter, which means rock. Okay? Jesus renames Simon. He says, Peter, you may think of yourself as just Simon, another fisherman. No offense if your name is Simon, but another fisherman. But I see something else in you. I see leadership, I see potential. I see that you can play a critical role in God's kingdom. And right after Andrew brings his brother Simon Peter to Jesus, that's where our text picks up. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Okay, so that's where he's from. So they're all connected there. Philip then found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Do you see what's happening here? Do you see what's happening in the relationships that are here? John the evangelist is letting us know in, these first, in the very first chapter of his gospel how the church grows. How do people come to know Jesus? How do people become disciples? Andrew introduces his brother to Jesus, his brother Simon, who becomes Peter. Philip introduces his friend Nathaniel to Jesus. And in fact, it says in verse 44, it tells us that Philip was from the hometown of Andrew and Peter, which then causes us to wonder, had Andrew and Peter already told Jesus that they had a mutual friend named Philip? And that's how Philip even got into the picture. And that they would very much like to have Jesus meet Philip. Were they already talking about their friend Philip to Jesus? That's called intercessory prayer. Okay, was that happening? Yeah, possibly. Or maybe... Jesus got to know Philip earlier through John the Baptist. In fact, these are both possibilities. But here's the point of this section. The point is, what this section reminds us is is that Jesus typically uses natural connections in order to extend his church and make disciples. The important thing is is that Jesus uses relationships with family and friends and neighbors and co workers. That's how Jesus extends his church typically. And notice how it's done. It's worth noting. This is not people standing on the corner, you know, a bunch of people started standing in the corner shouting at people. I remember one day when I was going to State University, there was a a guy that would stand and shout at people when they walked by. And I mean, I was a Christian, I was trying to share Jesus with people. I walked by one day and he said, you, you are a devil out of hell. I'm like, dude, I'm on the same team. Like, this isn't working. You know, it's not bait and switch, it's not, there's these techniques, there's not, you know, get people in this long, complex series of Bible verses and walk them through in some strange, pressured, weird situation. People aren't doing things out of manipulation or guilt. We have sincere conversations taking place where people who are excited about Jesus says, I found what we've been looking for, you should check out Jesus. It's just very simple. You know, people are just doing kind of what comes naturally in these stories, People excited about Jesus are talking to friends and family, people in their lives, and slowly but surely, the church is coming into being. And the first thing Andrew does is he talks to Simon Peter, and the first thing that Philip does is he tells his friend Nathaniel, and I just want to pause here and say kind of the obvious, the elephant in the room. The way Jesus wants to work to bring about disciples is through the people we already have natural connections with. Not in a manipulative or a weird way, not in us suddenly like, you know, changing and becoming weird, and oh, Jesus, you know, no, but just, it's, if we are genuinely enthusiastic about Jesus, it'll come out in the natural relationships. That's how God works. Yet this enthusiasm is met with skepticism, I love it. it. Met with skepticism. Uh, oh, by the way, I like, this, I like this icon because it shows, here's Philip in the middle, and he's like, Jesus, meet Nathaniel. Nathaniel, meet Jesus. So probably very Protestant. I, I'm sorry if you're Orthodox. Very Protestant way of reading an icon, but uh, illustrative. So, Jesus, so, so Nathaniel meets, uh, here's about Jesus from Philip, and the first thing out of his mouth is skepticism. Skepticism. Can anything good come out? Of Nazareth. Probably not what Philip was hoping to hear, all right? But here's what I love. I love the Bible is not afraid of skepticism. The Bible has lots of examples of skepticism. You have Job who's suffering and in the face of his suffering asks God, are you just toying with me? You have Thomas who needs empirical proof. You have the early deniers of the resurrection that float this well, you know what? Maybe the disciples stole the body. That's in the Bible, a skeptical claim. You know, you have Festus uh, who says, you know, Paul, maybe you're just out of your mind. Maybe you got so wound up in all these ideas, you kind of lost, you know, connection. And, and so one of the reasons I find the Bible convincing is because it's not afraid of hard questions. It's not, it, actually, it actually addresses those questions and it faces those questions, and it's no different here in Nathaniel's case. But note what kind of skepticism it is. It's not a classical kind of form of skepticism in which we have a completely different view of what the world is, like stoicism, where there's no meaning or any other purpose beyond what we kind of see. And so you just kind of have, have a stiff upper lift and press through. It's not Eastern thought, where we believe that we are just drops that are meant to kind of dissolve into the sea of divine reality of which we're a part. It's not new ageism in which all of reality, divine reality, kind of comes to us and we channel it. It's not enlightenment skepticism. Nathaniel doesn't believe, it's a closed universe, and only that which I can see, you know, and empirically detect and use pure reason, whatever that is. That's the only thing that exists, Jesus. It's not postmodern skepticism in which, you know, all belief is suspect because it's all part of a system and a narrative, and so there's oppressive power inherent in them. What kind of skepticism is it? It's cultural skepticism. That is the kind of skepticism he has. Nathaniel was skeptical of Philip's proposal because within nathaniel's culture there is a pecking order and within the imagination of nathaniel's culture there is no way god is going to do anything or show up in any spectacular way in nazareth nathaniel echoes the plausibility structures that come from his cultural context there's the academic saying but basically he's saying i mean and we all have this by the way we all have cultural blinders that then shape our imagination of what God can and can't do in the way God can and cannot work. Let me put it in our own terms. Two towns in California, Boonville and Barstow. Can anything good come out of Boonville and Barstow? One small and one you just want to get through. I think heard recently, Barstow, I guess they have outlets now, so they're trying to defeat that. But you know, when you meet people that are from certain places, you wonder, why did you choose to live there? They're already suspect. Like that is such a backwater. And I mean, what is it? You guys are into dueling banjos and people intermarry. Like, why are you from there? <laughs> you know, you immediately just think like, what? There's no way God would go there. There's no way that God would come f- from there. But God did. God did. And Nathaniel doesn't know how to handle that. You know, this is one of the great themes of the Christian faith. When God came into this world, he didn't come as some powerful political leader. He didn't come as some great philosopher. He came as a blue-collar carpenter. He didn't come from a prominent family. He didn't come from a wealthy, successful family. He came from a poor family. And not only was he from some backwater nowheresville and a poor family, he was from a disgraced family. You now, when we read that Mary finds out that she's going to be pregnant without being married, we have to put it in the cultural context of their society, in which, in a small town, in that time, in that period, it meant that through the rest of her life, she knew she'd be a person of disgrace. Because everybody would know, oh, yeah, Joseph and Mary, we know. We know about them. We know about your family. Small towns can be merciless. In fact, uh, Jesus' enemies like to kind of poke at him and say, oh, we know who your father is. Mm-hmm. We know who your father is, Jesus. Your father's the devil. That was, a, that was a way of, like, wrapping in a bunch of stuff, including you're illegitimate. So this... Is Jesus' situation. This is Jesus of Nazareth. And when we hear Jesus of Nazareth, just think to yourself, it, it, it's got a great in the ears of people. It wasn't a winning point that Jesus was a Nazarene. That was not a winning point. But contrary to what Nathaniel said, God's glory tends to come down into mangers, not luxury hotels. Tends to come down onto crosses, not thrones. And it comes into the lives of desolate people. It comes in the lives of people who have to have a stone for a pillow. That's where God's grace tends to come. It comes in the life of disgraced people, people whose lives have fallen apart. The Lord is close to those who are brokenhearted. We found the person. Who's going to turn this world upside down? Jesus of Nazareth. Nathaniel, like Jacob, thought there's no way God could work in that place. God doesn't care about nowhere's vills, and God doesn't care about nobody's fishermen. Carpenters. And you know, when I thought about this, I thought, you know, where's Nathaniel from? Is Nathaniel from Jerusalem? Woo, the New York of his day. On the pecking order, Nathaniel's is from, here's Nazareth, here's Cana. Like, barely above Nazareth. And so what's really Nathanael struggling with is, God has come, and he wants to work in the life, he's working in the life of my friend Philip, like he's discovered this, and now I could be a part of this? This just seems too good to be true. This just seems out there. I like Philip's response. You know, what Philip doesn't do is he doesn't say, you know what, let's have a theological debate about the history of Nazareth, and let's find that one verse in the Bible which Matthew quotes, and let me just develop a whole theology of Nazareth. No, he doesn't go there. He doesn't get into some big discussion. He is Christocentric. He brings it right back to Jesus. And he says, you need to check Jesus out for yourself. He keeps it experiential. He goes for the heart. Nathaniel doesn't get off track. I love that. I'm sorry. Um, Philip doesn't get off track. I love that about Philip's response. He invites Nathaniel to encounter Jesus, to meet him, to come to know him for himself. All right. So Nathaniel goes to meet Jesus, and um, we're going to see now that his expectations are blown apart, OK? But I want to say something right now, like, did Jesus know that Nathanael was doubting? That Nathanael had said what he said about his hometown? And did Jesus like being from Nazareth? I bet Jesus actually had a fondness for Nazareth. And what surprised me is, I think Jesus didn't say, and I'm going to be a little silly now, but Jesus didn't say, yo, I hear you've been dissing my homies (laughs) from Nazareth. (laughs) I got some news for you. Cana boy, I might be from nowhere, but I'm going to smack you and send you somewhere. Like, Jesus didn't even go there. And it's funny, but it's part of the point here. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. What does he do? Jesus calls out a key trait in Nathanael. He acknowledges a personality trait that can be read in different ways. We already saw Nathaniel, he tells it like he sees it, a little bit raw, the kind of person that kind of sometimes you think like, all right, a little too much truth here, dude. But Jesus says, you know what? I like that you tell the truth. I can work with that. I like that. In fact, when we look in the Gospels, we see what really bugs Jesus is the people that are constantly trying to hide things and deceive Jesus. This, you know, the Pharisees are like, well, if we tell him this, he'll think this, and if we tell him this, he'll say this, and da da da. So let's just go ahead and say, okay, well, Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus is like, well, I know I'm God. Like, how bugging would it be to be God and have people putting on a show and lying to your face all the time, right? Jesus hates deception. God can work with people who are honest. He can work with people that just come and tell it like it is because God knows how it is. And until you have that kind of real raw conversation with God, you're just fooling yourself before the person, the one who sees everything. And when we do that, we pretend that we don't need God, uh, you know, and that God's not God, then we're actually just cutting ourselves off from help. Jesus said, I've not come to call the righteous. If you think you're so good, you don't need any help. I'm not here for you. But I've come for sinners. If you don't think you have any problems, and everyone else is a sinner, you don't need God's help, the bad news is you're actually probably going to get what you're asking for. But Nathaniel is caught off guard by this response. And Nathaniel's like, "Um, excuse me? Wait. Wait, how do you how do you know how do you know me? Come again. Um, and then Jesus says, "This, I saw you under the fig tree. I saw you under the fig tree." And of course, all of you who have seen chosen season two episode two, you already know what this means. You have a whole backstory. <laughs> Nathaniel had this big architecture career, da-da-da-da, and, and it all falls apart. In a moment of desperation, he went privately under the fig tree, and then he cried out to God, but God didn't answer, and he wonders, God, why didn't you answer? And he's brokenhearted. Well, maybe. John doesn't say that. Oh, maybe, maybe he had this moment where he dedicated his family and his life, everything to God. Well, maybe. Maybe. Like a lot of people in Israel did, he went under a fig tree and rested there. And enjoyed being out of the sun. We can conjecture all day, but John doesn't include those details. John may not even know what those details were. The exact specifics of Nathaniel's time under the fig tree is not important for John. What is important is Nathaniel was convinced that Jesus was referring to a particular event that he knew there was no way Jesus could know. Apart from some kind of supernatural insight. How in the world can anything good come from Nazareth becomes, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. You are the Messiah. He is transformed with the knowledge that God knows. God knows. God sees all of this. God sees his life. That is, I mean, there's a whole other sermon here I'm not going to preach right now, would involve Psalm 139 and a bunch of other stuff about God going before us and behind us, and before there's a word on our lips, God knows it. But and, and maybe you've met older saints that sometimes they say, God knows. I mean, younger people that say, they'd be like, God knows. I'm like, why are you saying that all the time? Actually, when you actually come to enter into the knowledge that God knows every detail, God knows the difficulty. In a friendship, or a way in which your spouse doesn't meet you, or the complexity of job relationships, when you can pray, and a lot of prayer is just simply coming to the place that Nathaniel came to, which is, you know, God knows. God knows. All right, Nathaniel meets Jesus. Now, I'm taking it to the next level. We got that stuff on the ice. Remember, remember. All right. I thought that was the sermon when I wrote the sermon, and then Josh dropped me a book by this amazing New Testament scholar. I'm like, oh, there's some next level stuff here. So we're going to do it. I'm going to risk next level stuff. Here we go. There's something else going on here in this encounter with Nathaniel and Jesus' words. And now it's time to take the story off the ice and see this other level. You know, the Bible has layers of meaning. The Bible, a child can read the Bible and be astounded and amazed and their heart can be changed, and a brilliant scholar can read the Bible and be amazed and astounded. The Bible has so many just layers of richness. So let's go for this other layer of richness. There's some other things going on here. First, let's go back. Jesus said to Nathaniel, You are truly an Israelite in whom there's no deception. Truly an Israelite. The word there is Alethios in Greek. Jesus actually uses the word truly, or Lethios for himself. Jesus is truly the savior of the world in John six fourteen. He's truly a prophet. John likes to say this about Jesus. And when, when, when Jesus says, you are truly Israelite, Israelite's no big deal. That's what you called each other back then. They didn't use the word Jew, okay? But you're truly, Jesus here is attaching Nathaniel to himself. He's identifying with Nathaniel. And then, on top of that, after linking himself, he says, in whom there's no deception, now, we already saw Jacob, the guy from whom we get the name Israel, was someone marked by deception. And, and this was in the back of Israel's mind, like, you know, the person that started us all off, he was kind of a cheater, and we actually really failed, and we're hoping that someday we can get our act together, and the Messiah will come, and there was this promise that there was a remnant of Israel that one day God would take his people and that he would restore them and they'd truly be able to be a part of what God's plan was and live the kind of life that God wanted. And when Jesus speaks into Nathanael's life, and says, you are truly an Israelite with whom there is no deception. There's that entire echo that God will bring about a new Israel, a faithful remnant, And they shall do no wrong and utter no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths. That's going on. Jesus is speaking a statement that Nathanael belongs with the reconstituted people of God under the Messiah and God's future kingdom. And then Jesus goes on and he says, and I saw you under the fig tree. And in saying this, there is another immediate echo, for there was a great promise that is repeated in three different prophets, that one day when the Messiah comes, everyone is going to sit underneath their own fig tree and kick back and enjoy it. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. Notice Zacharias there again. Those two verses, no deceit and under the fig tree, are very close together. In fact, they're connected through a complex hermeneutic I'm not going to explain right now. But Jesus is speaking a statement to Nathaniel here. And here's what it is. Jesus is speaking into his life. He, He grabbed Peter the fisherman, and he said, no, no, you're the rock. And he grabbed Nathaniel from nowhere, and he says, oh, no, no, you're a part of God's people. You are a part of true Israel. You know, at birthday parties, we like to go around and say something nice, kind of speak into each other's lives. I think it's a beautiful tradition, right? What are we doing when we do that? Why are we blessing people like that? Why is that important? Well, it's important because we know that our identity is not just about self-discovery and fight up in spite of every Disney film where you got to follow your own heart, that actually identity is also gift. In the words of philosopher Brian Greger, the self is always spoken before it speaks. What that means is who we are is in a large part given to us. And we desperately need to have people that speak into our lives. We desperately need people that are going to notice us. And instead of going the direction of, man, you're a loud mouth. Boy, you just let it all hang out, don't you, Nathaniel? That honesty is beautiful, Nathaniel. And you know what? God's got an incredible promise for your life. To be a Christian is to believe in redemption, to believe that there's no one you could ever meet who is beyond God's grace and love, who couldn't one day shine with glory and beauty. In other words, there's no nowheresvilles and there's no nobodies because God has called us and can call everybody by name. When I was a senior, I'm going to try not to cry. When I was a senior in high school, I had a roaring 2.9 GPA. That's bad if you're not from this country. Um, No one went to college in my family. And one day, Sid Waller, he had a patch. He was kind of weird, had a long beard, kind of a creepy bonehead English teacher. (laughs) Said um, he wasn't bonehead. He, He also taught college, and he just had a heart. And I'm in this class, and he said, you know, somebody turned in an essay, and they just did everything right, and they have beautiful writing. And He kept describing something. I'm like, wow, there's somebody smart in this class. And he said, Robert, will you come up and read your essay? I mean, I, I feel like crying, because he s- noticed something. He spoke into my life, and he set my life on a completely different trajectory. And he said, you know What? I know you got a bad GPA. I can get you. I teach also at a university. I can get you in there. Where are you going to university? I don't know. I, don't know. I was going to drive a truck. Okay, I can get you in there. Acts four thirteen says, when they saw the courage Peter and John had, and, and when they realized that they were somehow unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that they had been with Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus, when you meet him, when you encounter him, he is going to speak into your life. That's how you know you've met Jesus. He's going to call you names that are beautiful. You're a child of God. You're my beloved. You're the one I love. Yeah, I know. I see. I see it all. I love you. Jesus sees in us something we can't see. Nathanael heard of Jesus and judged him before he met him, but then Jesus turned around to Nathanael and saw something in him and blessed him and noticed him. And he loves to give people new names, and he would love to give you a new name if you don't know him. Jesus is a redeemer. What does it mean to redeem? It takes something that is broken, that is, that is lost, that's sitting in bonehead English, and giving a glorious and bright future. So Nathaniel's taken completely off guard with this supernatural knowledge about his life. He completely turns 180 degrees around. And, uh, and then Jesus, of course, then keeps going. And he says, truly, 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 which is Jesus' way of saying, hey, listen, this is super important. Okay, truly, truly, I say to you, and then all, it's in the Greek, and all the commentators know, like, oh, he went from the singular to the plural. Who's he talking to? He's talking to all of his disciples. He's talking to us. You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So he brings that Jacob's Ladder picture, and he says, and you know where? The angels are landing. You know what's connecting heaven and earth? Me. Now you can read through the Gospel of John, and there are no angels coming and going with Jesus. Jesus is taking this and this idea that heaven was opened and connected, heaven and earth were connected. And he says, I am the one that does that. And that is truly significant and important. That is the good news is that Jesus connects heaven and earth. It's this place, this strange place, this this Nazarene from some backwater place, that is actually the way in which heaven and earth are connected, in which heaven is left wide open. Jesus says, through me, you can have complete access. You can have a wide open pathway to be in connection with God and you can know your love by God and you can find God's grace. And how does Jesus do that? One last thing before we close. Very interesting little thing here. That word there ladder, okay? The root of that is the same root from which we get the word cross. Jesus is saying and John is here intimating through his cross Jesus is going to open heaven. And he did that so that we can be called beloved children, that we can know that we are noticed and loved by God. Don't you want that? If you have that, don't you want to keep celebrating that? Have we digested all the blessings and goodness and that that Jesus sees us? And that's all possible because of what he's done.